Well, as always, it is a privilege of mine to be able to stand in this pulpit and open the Bible with you. Uh, we are going to be continuing, this is the last week, in Psalm 23. Psalm 23. This beloved passage of poetry and confession that's right in the middle of our Bibles. Page 458, um, if you're still turning there. Uh, Psalm 23. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we have been uh, just taking a pretty slow approach to a well-known passage of Scripture. Psalm 23 is only six verses long, and we've only been going through a couple of verses each week. Because I want to just take time, because we quickly read through texts that we sometimes feel like we're familiar with. Right? If you've read a passage of the Bible numerous times, what you tend to do is you get to that passage and you quickly go through because you think you already know everything it entails. And I know for Psalm 23, that's more true of us than it probably is in, of any other passage of Scripture. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I, I remember growing up in my room, someone had given me uh, this picture of, it was this, like a silhouetted cowboy kind of riding off into the sunset, and it had Psalm 23 on it. Now, Psalm 23 has nothing to do with cowboys. Uh, but I remember, I remember loving that passage of scripture. Just even as a non-Christian, I remember just looking at this at night and seeing that, you know what? Because I didn't, honestly, I didn't really know exactly what it meant. I didn't. I didn't know exactly what it meant. But what I, I did know a couple of things in which it was pointing me to. And the first one is I realize that if that's a God, if that's a true God, if that's a God and who people say that he is, that he is not just a buzzkill in heaven trying to ruin anything that I find enjoyable if I step out of line. That's not the God of creation. It's also not the God who just, at the beginning of the world, just wound up the, uh, you know, a clock, so to speak, wound up all of time, said it, and then said, good luck. I hope you figure it out. I hope things go well for you. But what Psalm 23 began to do in me, even at an early age church, is it began to communicate that God is deeply involved in his creation in a special way. That he's a shepherd. A shepherd. Someone who leads and knows how to flourish in this life. And someone who is intimately involved in the life of those who belong to him. And we've talked about this. Who belongs to him? Sorry. So who, if, if God is a shepherd, then how do we know that we belong to his sheepfold? How do we know that we belong to him? It's those who have come to an understanding of the gospel. Those who have understand that, that Jesus is not just some man that lived 2,000 years ago, that, but a man that lived a life that we could not live and yet died the death that we deserved and rose from the grave. And we believe that's true. The Bible says that's the gospel, that's the good news, that you were dead in your trespasses, but God has made you alive in Christ because of his work on the cross. And so if you believe those things, then you're part of his sheep. You're part of his flock. And therefore, he is the shepherd then. He's the shepherd. And in response to having the Lord be your shepherd... We've been looking at Psalm 23 and seeing a lot of those realities, right? That he leads, that he protects, that he restores. He restores even the souls that can be cast down. We talked about that last week. That a cast down sheep is a sheep that cannot get back up. 
a sheep that's stranded on its back. And the only way for that sheep to be restored is if the shepherd comes along and picks it back up and puts it on his feet. That's what he restores my soul is all about. So we've been looking at some of those great, marvelous truths of Psalm 23. But I have this feeling, church, I have this feeling that most of us are probably really familiar with verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 23. We love those truths, right? We love that he leads and protects. We love that he moves us to greener pastures. We love that he leads us behind, beside still waters. And then we end, though, after verse 4. We get to that you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And we close it, right? Close it. Like, hey, God, if you're a shepherd and you're rod and your staff, they comfort me. Hey, that's a, that's a good spot to end. And we close it up. We close it up because oftentimes when we, when we go to Psalm 23 or, or we read it, we read it as if it's only needed in times of trials. It's only needed when we're walking through those valleys of the shadow of death. But church, hear me on this. And I've been saying this for weeks now. Psalm 23 is about all of the Christian life, not just about times of trial. Because when things go wrong, we should absolutely go to Christ. We should absolutely depend on him as shepherd. But that's not the only time in your life that you should be going and, and being with Christ. But it's every season of life. You see, because God's not in the business. If you are cast down, if you are needing to be led, God is not in the business simply coming along and picking you up, right? Putting you on your feet and saying, good luck. I hope you figure it out. Call me when something goes wrong again. That's not the God that we worship. That's not the God of the Bible. Because the truth is, of, if the Lord is our shepherd, if Psalm 23 is true, then it will affect all of our life. And even verses 5 through 6 talk about it will affect all of eternity, not just life in this world, not just times of trial in this season, but all of life. Because when you get the Lord as your shepherd, you will get a lot of good things from that. A lot of good things. Great gifts of God, per se. And those should absolutely be enjoyed and looked forward to. But you know what's even better than the gifts that God gives? Himself. You get Him. You get Him. Because all, all the things that we get from Him, we're going to look at some of those. They're wrapped up in the gift of Himself. The gift of a shepherd who deeply cares and leads those who belong to him. So I'm excited to show and walk through verses 5 through 6. I think if you're anything like me, it's going to open your eyes to some of the, the deeper realities and the enjoyments of having the Lord as your shepherd. But let's go ahead and let's stop there. If you guys could, let's stop and pray one more time. And, and I'm going to pray for you. And as I do that, I would ask that you pray for me. So let's go ahead and pray one more time. Well, Father, I'm so thankful for this text. I'm thankful that we get the opportunity to simply look at it again. That there's more to learn. There's more to see. There's more to ponder. And God, I pray for every single person in this room, regardless of if they've, this is the, the, the millionth time they've read Psalm 23, or maybe it's just the third time they've ever read it, or the first time. That God, that you would open our eyes to see the truths of it to see the reality of it, to see the joys of it. 
God, help every single person in this room do that. God, I also want to pray for our kids and our teachers as, as they continue to, to show just the promises that God has made a long, long time ago that their little hearts would just be awakened to those. We thank you for each and every one of them. God, we thank you for everyone in this room. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so Psalm 23, page 458, if you haven't found it yet. And as I've been doing the last few weeks, I'm just going to read it in its entirety, but then we're going to camp out in verses 5 through 6. But Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Church, that is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we're thankful for the word of God. That's all that means. So for those who like to take notes, here are the big three takeaways that I want you to see from verses five through six. Is the Lord gives gifts. We're going to see that. He gives gifts. He gives assurance. And he gives us a new home. But if you want to draw a big circle around all of those, those are all wrapped up in the gift of himself. Now let's go ahead and start just walking through verses five and six. So it starts off, it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, David has been talking about sheep and shepherd, right? He's been using that illustration, using that analogy of the Lord is my shepherd. He's going to lead me, right? He's going to He's going to protect me as, as we go through these valleys, right? And we've been unpacking that David has been clearly using this sheep and shepherd language. That is obvious. So what is going on here in verses 5 through 6? I think, there's a, I think there's a distinction that has to be made. I think that David is changing up his analogy, so to speak. He's changing up the way that he's illustrating this truth of who God is and what he does. Now, just to be honest, I think that there's some good theologians, scholars, who do believe that David is continuing with the analogy of sheep and shepherd in verses 5 through 6. Basically saying that the table is basically what could be referred to as a high plateau that sheep get to, and the anointing with oil is when, the, when a shepherd would come and put oil on his sheep to protect them from parasites and flies and other things. And that, that could be true. That could be true. That could be exactly what David, David means. But I, personally, I don't think that is the case. I don't think that is the case. And I don't think it's the case for a couple of reasons. One is, if you look at the language of, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord, or my cup overflows, the table that you have prepared, that certainly seems like language of people, right? Language of humanity, Right? I don't know a whole lot of sheep that are talking about their cups being runneth over or sheep talking about dwelling in houses forever. 
So I, I think that David is making a distinction in Psalm 23. He's moving it to, from animals to people to describe the human experience with the Lord God. But that's not really the only reason why I believe that the language is shifting. Because there's another place in the Bible where you see the language shift from animals to people also. And you know who did that? Jesus. Jesus did in Luke 15, and, and you guys can go ahead and turn there if you want. In Luke 15, Jesus is basically getting confronted by Pharisees and scribes about why is he hanging out with certain types of people. And Jesus describes, decides that he's going to tell three parables in order to, you know, to help all the people understand how God relates to people. Now, the first parable is the one that we talked about last week. Do you remember that? The parable of the shepherd who goes and finds his lost sheep. Right? The parable of the shepherd who has 100 sheep and he gets to a place and he finds that only 99 are with him. And what does that shepherd do? He goes and finds the one lost sheep that he has. We talked about this last week. Right? This beautiful reality that Jesus is that good shepherd who never loses one of his sheep, that there's never a time where Jesus says that you have gone too far that I cannot come and restore you, that I cannot come and find you, that I cannot come and bring you back to myself. That nobody is too far gone. Nobody is unreachable. Right? Jesus always gets those who belong to him. I love that parable. I love that parable. So Jesus starts talking about sheep and shepherd, just like David. But he tells two more parables, right, in Luke 15. And he moves from talking about animals to people. So the next one is the parable of the lost coin. But then the third parable is probably the most famous parable that Jesus ever told, right? It's the parable of the prodigal son. Probably have heard of it. So if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Is this third parable. This third parable. And it says, and he said there was a man who had two sons. Two sons. Now, I don't have time to necessarily walk through this parable line by line, but for those of you who may not be familiar with it, let me just give a a quick summary of what this is about. So basically, Jesus says, hey, there is this, this father, and this father has two sons, Two sons. And one day, the younger of the two sons comes to his father and says, I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. I want my inheritance. I don't want to wait for you to die. I want you to give me what is written in the will right now so I can go and I can turn my back on you and the family and everybody else. I just want your stuff. I don't want you. I don't want the family anymore. And so the father says, okay, I'll give it to you. And the son he says it goes to a faraway land. In verse 14, it says that he had spent everything. So he goes this far away and he spends everything. He spends it on, on prostitutes and other prodigal living and finds himself completely broke. So broke that he ends up basically working uh, with pigs to try to earn a living, to try to earn something to eat. And then one day, he, he's, as he's basically competing with these pigs for food, he realizes, what am I doing? What am I doing? My father, my good father, I I need to go back to him. I need to go back to him. And so he has this realization that his father's good. His father knows what's best. His father loves him, and he needs to go back to him. 
right? And Jesus, why, the reason why Jesus is telling this is because that's the story of us all, right? That we quickly convince ourselves that if we just go out on our own, we do our own thing, everything will be good. But yet, sometimes, sometimes sooner than later, we find ourselves that, oh my gosh, I've made a huge mistake. I have absolutely, absolutely destroyed my life. And that comes just from God's own conviction of your soul. That you are not as good as you thought you were. And so you have this conviction that I need to go back. I need to go back to the one that's created me, the one that loves me. And that's a huge aspect of Christianity is when you finally realize that you don't just need a spiritual pep talk for your life, but you actually need to be rescued. That's when you know the gospel, the good news of the person and work of Jesus is starting to to really take effect in your life. Is when Jesus is not just an add-on, like, oh yeah, that'd be nice if I need it but rather he becomes your life because he's the one that gave it up for you. So the son, after having this conviction, this repentant heart, it says that he, he goes back to the father. He's going back to the property, the family property. And, and even though he's a long ways off, a long ways off, it says in verse 20, chapter 15, that the father had compassion and ran and kissed him and embraced him. So this father... Even though his son had turned his back on him, said, Noah, I'm going to keep looking for you. I'm going to keep waiting for you. And so when he sees his son, he, he picks up and he runs to him, which not, would not have been common for an Eastern man to run. It would have been embarrassing in a lot of ways, but the father didn't care about any of that. He cared about his son. And so he ran and he embraced and he kissed his son. He clothed him. And what does he decide to do in verse 23? That not only is he going to welcome back in the family, not only is he going to give him everything, but he's going to throw a big party. He's going to throw a big party for his son. It says in verse 23, to, to bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again, for he was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. So the father says, I want to celebrate my son. I want to celebrate the one who's been restored. I want to celebrate the one who was lost, but now has been found. And so he tells his servants to go and prepare a table. To prepare a table. And that's exactly what the father does. He prepares a table. Do you know why he does that? Not because he's treating this individual like he's a servant that's returned home. Or a servant that went AWOL. Or just some lost boy that was in need, but that he was his son who had returned. See, it changes the game completely, church. When you understand that God does not just look at you like as one of his created things, even though that's true, but one that bears his own image. One that bears his own image. You see, he didn't wait for the son to figure it out. He didn't wait for the son to, to climb you know, the ladder of good works to do the right things. And then said, if you come home and you do all these things and you prove yourself, then I'll throw you a party. He said, no, right then and there. I'm going to throw you the party of parties. And I wish we could walk through this a little bit more in detail because even the other son is learning a a great deal about the grace and mercy of this father figure in this parable. Because this is how... This is how Jesus wanted to communicate 
This is not only how the shepherd tries to find his lost son and brings him home, but this is how the shepherd is also a good father who welcomes you back and brings you to the table, to the table. This is how he sees you. And in this culture, the only way for you to basically show off something good has happened in your life, it wasn't to go buy things and then, you know, you know, go to all your neighbors and say, hey, look what I have, look what I have bought, look how great things are going right now in my life. The way in this culture that you would celebrate that God has moved is you would throw a giant party, right? You would gather all of your friends, all of your family, and you would have a feast because the table has always been this declaration of love and victory, and love and victory. So church, don't you see how this relates to Psalm 23? Is after walking through the valley of the shadow of death, after leading you to greener pastures, after leading you beside still waters, after doing all the things that a good shepherd does, David says, but you know what? It's more than that. It's like a son returning to his father. Because he doesn't just want you back physically, but he wants you back holistically. That you're not just, right, that sheep coming back, but you're a son coming back. That's why I think David is changing the language from sheep to people. Because he's like, you're not just another sheep. You are a part of the family. You're a son. Because what I fear, this is what I fear myself and I fear of every single one of us, is that we can, we can be like Psalm 23 and we can believe verses 1 through 4. Right? We can believe it with all of our heart and say, Lord, I, I want you to be there when things are rough. I want you to walk me through those valleys of the shadow of death. I so desperately need you when I walk through those things because I know that your rod and your, comfort, your, your staff, they comfort me. But yet, when you get to those higher grounds, right, when you get through the valley, what do we tend to do? We tend to go, thanks, God. I think I got it from here. I'll let you know when I need something again. And you basically peace out. You basically say that I just want you for your stuff, but I don't want you for you. And so verses five through six is talking about a different reality, right? A different reality. So go back to Psalm 23. Look at verse five. It says, you prepare a table before me. That's the language of celebration. That's that language of the prodigal son, that I am preparing a table before you. And then it says, in the presence of my enemies. Now, I think there's some contextual things in which David, the author of this, had some real enemies. And truthfully, scholars don't know exactly what David's referring to in this moment. But I would say, if we were just to look at how the, the story of the prodigal son fits in with Psalm 23, think about the enemies that were even at that celebration of the prodigal son returning. The other son in the story, which I didn't really get a chance to talk to too much about, if, if you were to read Luke 15, you'd see that he hated this. He hated that his father was throwing this giant party for his son. It's like, how could you? I've been doing all the good things. I've never abandoned you, and yet you're going to throw a party for this guy? See, he was trying to still learn the grace of the father also. But I think it'd be, it's not out of stretch to say that he probably was an enemy of the son, the first son at this, or the, the younger son at this point. That it, when he went to the party, he probably thought that his older brother was an enemy of his at this moment. 
Or think of all the other people that would have been at the party. They knew what that younger son had done. They knew that he had stabbed his father in the back. They knew that he had abandoned the family. Do you think that they just forgot about that? No. No, they didn't forget about that. And so I think when David says here that you prepare a table in the presence of my enemies, that there is certainly a reality that, that God knows that when we, when we turn and we learn and understand and throw ourselves on the grace of God, there's going to be people that don't think that you deserve it. There's going to be people that think that you should have done something to get there. They're enemies of the cross and they're enemies of the gospel. I think sometimes ignorantly they don't know that. But I think what David is trying to say here and what Jesus said in Luke 15 is that irrespectively of who is watching, irrespectively of the opinions of other people, God does not hold back his love towards you. And how good news is that? That regardless of what other people think of you or regardless of what other people think that you should have in this life, God says, that doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is what I'm going to give you and I'm going to give you myself. Which is an important aspect. It's an important aspect for us, I think, as we as we strive to not only follow Jesus but also help other people do the same, is we need to be people that celebrate the grace of God in other people's lives. People that celebrate that when God is drawing someone back to himself, when God has picked up a downcast sheep and brought him back to the fold, not with judgment, not with how dare you, or I couldn't believe that you would have do that, but rather, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for that. Because do you know that God likes to save people who you probably wouldn't want to save? Do you know that God goes after the people that you've already written off? Is that just me? Is that just me to sometimes go, no, I I don't know. There's no way that I can imagine that that person would ever want to follow Christ. That that person would ever, ever be seen in church. In my flesh, I do that. I can do that. But what we're seeing here throughout all the psalmas, that's, but that's not, that's me. That's not God. God does not share that. There's never someone that is too far gone. There's no one that is outside the love of God. God so loved the world, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. So there's not a single person that we can't nominate. Say, if you're part of the world, you, you, you're under the, under the umbrella and whom God loves to desire and move towards. And even more than that, I think if we just think about the enemies that are at that table, and we just take a holistic approach to all of the Bible, you know, you know there's another place that describes enemies, enemies of God, you know who he's talking about? Us. Every single one of us outside of Christ is considered an enemy of his. An enemy of his. So if we want to talk about he brings enemies to the table, that's good news because every single one of us is an enemy of God. In and of ourselves. In and of ourselves. But when he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, church, I think he's pointing to a greater salvation narrative 
a greater salvation narrative which points to not just a table, but the table, the table of the new covenant. The table that allows every single person who's been an enemy to be able to become a friend, an enemy to become a son, an enemy to become a daughter because of Jesus going to the cross. Even though you were enemies, Christ died for you. The church, to, to be an enemy is not, it's a horrible thing. Nobody wants to be an enemy of Christ. And nobody should want to stay that way. But the truth is, is that God's not done with you even though if you are an enemy. It's, the same, it's all going back to the same thing, that, that God is a shepherd who goes after those who would never, who we would never go after. We would count them as a loss. Not so with our Father. Not so with our Father in heaven. You see, I have often just read verse 5 very quickly. I'll be honest. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I had no idea what that meant. But I think as we, as we combine that with all the other aspects of what Christ does and what other tables that he prepares, it starts to come to life, doesn't it? It starts to come to life. Even it says that he anoint my head with oil. Talking about the celebration, it was custom in that time period that for the host of a, of a big party, a host of a big table, what they would do to their privileged guests is they would take oil and spread it on their head, sometimes in glop, sometimes already in liquid. And basically what it was is throughout the, the duration of the dinner that that oil would come down just from the heat of their head and the fragrance of the room would just light up light up. It was basically the host showing as much honor as he possibly could to his guest. So much honor. It even says that my cup overflows, that same language of a party. That the moment that you would take a drink of your cup, there'd be somebody there filling back up. Your cup's overflowing in so many ways, meaning that God does not hold back on his gifts. He doesn't hold back. That when he welcomes you home, he's not just welcoming you home and saying, good luck, but he's saying, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. Here's everything that belongs to me. I'm giving it to you. That's the God that we have. He pulls out all the stops, all the stops, and he doesn't hold back any gift that he wants to give to his children. So as we even think about those gifts then, here's what I want to challenge us with. Is if, if God is so merciful in bringing us through these valleys of the shadow of death and to leading us to greener pastures and to leading us beside still waters, and he's the one who brings us home and he's the one who welcomes us to his table, then may we not approach Jesus like he's some kind of add-on in our life. That he's not just someone who I go to when I think I need him. Or that when I approach life, like it's my giant table, and I'm just going to ask Jesus to come and have dinner with me when I think I need him to be there. But rather see our lives as ones that we're sitting at his table, the one that he has prepared for me. I don't want to peace out. I don't. And, and here's just, just my, own, my own convictions of this. I don't want my life just to be a lot of 
of things that are really about me and my convictions and my dreams, and I'm just trying to sprinkle in a little Jesus on there when things get tough. But I want my life to be reflective of one that has been lost but found and brought to the table. You see, Psalm 23 is not just about finding, finding a shepherd in hard times. It is. It can be used as that, like we've talked about. But it's not just a little Jesus in hard times, but it's Jesus in all of life. You see, Jesus in hard times, that's American Christianity. That is straight up American Christianity. Right? If things are going, if things are going bad, that's when you pray. If things are going good, well, maybe, maybe not. Psalm 23 is pointing to a different reality. And he not only saves you, but he adopts you. And he takes what he has and he lavishes it upon you in such a way that it's not just about his gifts, but also the assurance that comes with it. Not just about the banquet table, but all of life that's going to come through, through the rest of it. On this side of eternity, look at verse 6 of Psalm 23. It says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So he gives assurance in there. Right, that's point number two. He gives assurance. So he gives gifts, but he also gives assurance. Now, a little Hebrew for you in verse 6. That word goodness there is the, the Hebrew word tov. Tov means goodness or beauty or what's kind or what's right. It's a wonderful word that just, that the author's trying to say, it's not just good things like circumstantially. It's good things holistically. It's good things at the depths of who you are. At the depths of life, it's good. I think it's what, what Paul even meant when he said, said the famous line in Romans eight twenty eight, When he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? For good. For good for those who are called according to his purpose. And you know that's not just circumstantial, Right? Because when, you, when God works all things together for good, sometimes that's not easy, right? That's not good in the sense of everything is working itself out exactly how I planned, but it's good and it's exactly what I needed. It's good at a God level. It's perfect. Now, the other word there in verse 6, I want to draw your attention to, that word mercy is the Hebrew word hesed. It's, it's, a, it's basically a covenantal love. It's a radical commitment. It's a radical devotion from one person to another, not based off of any conditions. It's not a contract. It's not a, hey, if you do this, then I will do this. No, but it's, hey, I am going to do this for you regardless of what you ever do in return. Has said, it's a covenantal love. It's a loyalty love. And so what David is saying here, he's saying, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That is radical, church. It's radical. Now, I don't like when people follow me. I don't like when things follow me. I'm not a big uh, person. So let me give you an example of this. I can't stand it when I'm at the grocery store or at a gas station and somebody's standing so close to me I could feel their breath. You guys ever been there? Hopefully you're not the one standing behind them. And I, I can't, st- it bugs me like no else, nobody else. Thankfully, I think COVID has really helped with that, right? With those six-foot stickers. I was telling Gina the other day, I, I really hope that those stick around for a while. 
I don't know why people feel like they need to close the gap all the time. So I don't like when things are so close to me that I feel like they're following me. Now, in contrast, that's not what we're talking about here, okay? So when it says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, what David is pointing out is that there is this this transcendence of the goodness and the love and the commitment of a God that's going to follow you all the days of your life, Christian. That even if things go wrong again, even if things get tough, even if you have feasted at the banquet table of Christ, that goodness and covenantal love are going to follow you, are going to follow you all the days of your life. And know in one of the ways that I've experienced this, have you ever experienced the love and the, the, the salvation of Christ? You've experienced that banquet table and then you try to sin again. It doesn't feel right, right? You try to go back to maybe your old ways of doing things and it just doesn't feel right because your heart's been changed. And you know this goodness and this covenantal love is following you. And so you're not, you're not saying, Lord, I want to you know, not sin because I, I want to get your love or because... I think if I do that, then I will lose your love. But you know that that love's going to be there no matter what. That it's always going to follow you. That goodness is always going to follow you. So David is saying this in a way that I think that every single one of us can relate to. That we don't, we're not just a one and done with Christ. But it's a, it's a forever. He makes a forever covenant with you. A forever goodness. That I am going to give you good things that you don't even know that you need. I'm even going to commit to you in that covenantal love that you can't even imagine. That's the Savior that we have. Now, lastly, point number three, God gives us a new home. Look at the end of verse six, and it says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, what does David mean by that? There's a couple of ways we could look at that. I think, is David talking about maybe just enjoying and going and being a part of worship in the temple forever and ever like as far as he has the ability now because of the work that the shepherd has done in his life to now be able to worship him right in the temple yeah i think that that's part of it i think that's part of it but i think it's more than that i think when david david is talking about i shall dwell in the house of the lord forever it's bigger than just the temple it's bigger than that because who, what belongs to God in this world, right? Like a pop quiz. What on earth does not belong to God? Nothing, nothing, church. There's a famous uh, quote by a, a theologian named Abraham Kuyper. Let me show this to you. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. So dwelling in the house of the Lord has this idea of always being able to strive and be in the presence of the Lord. That, that if you are a Christian, that means that you don't separate your life. It doesn't mean that you have your right, your church life and then your work life and then your hobby life and those are separate from each other. What, what it's saying here is if I dwell in the house of the Lord forever, it means that I am always in your presence, that I am always going to be led by you. I'm always going to be cared for by you and to realize that and to enjoy that. That's such a gift, church. That, that, that means that there's not any place that you can go in this world 
that God's not there with you. That God's not there with you. Now, certainly in the aspect of, of sin, does that mean that God is there sinning with you? No. But he's there saying, no, 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 no. Remember my love for you. Remember my goodness for you. And he's drawing you back. He's drawing you back. So there's that present reality. But I think that David's also pointing to a future reality. That this world, Christian, is not your ultimate home. It's not your ultimate home. And even though that God has called us to live here, right? We talk about this when we talk about the mission of the church. He's called us to live here. He's called us to work here. He's called us to have the friends that we have, the family members that we have, the neighbors that we have for a reason. And we are to be responsible to those domains that he's placed us in. But ultimately, our hope is not in those things. Our hope is not in those things. Our hope is not in this world. I hope 2020 has really made you aware of that. That your hope is not in this world. That one virus, one politician, one bad mistake can jack up a lot of things, maybe. Right? Your hope is not in this world. Listen, so it's speaking of also another world to come. Let me show you this from the words of Jesus. This is what Jesus had to say when he's speaking to his disciples about this reality. He says this in John 14, 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And by the way, what Jesus is talking about is our hearts can get troubled. Right? When we start thinking about the things of this world, we're not unique in saying, I don't, I don't know what you're going to do with this, Lord. It seems like it's a big mess. How in the world are you going to fix this? We're not the first people to think that. So Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So what Jesus is getting at is there's nothing that can take you away from the ultimate home in which God is preparing for you. That even though we are called to this place right now, we are sojourners though. We are sojourners and it's, it's not the end that we are moving from into something different, but not by ourselves, right? That we're not, that's why the whole language of a shepherd language is in this text. In Psalm 23 is that you are not alone, that you are being led from one world to the world to come, to the new heavens and to the new earth. In fact, in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, Jesus speaks about a future final marriage supper of the Lamb, where he basically describes that, that there is going to be a, a giant banquet, a giant party. A lot of the language, even which Ken read about in Psalm 45, that there's going to be this giant marriage supper of the Lamb in which every single person is going to be sitting around celebrating and feasting and remembering the one who brought them in. <laughs> Man, it's such a good gift. It's such a good gift. Because ultimately the greatest gift that God gives is not just his stuff in this world, not just all the things which we look forward to, not just the provision to walk us through hard times, not just the provision to nourish us, but the ultimate gift that God gives us is himself. Is himself. The marriage supper of the Lamb. See, it's even a themed party. 
church. It's not just the supper. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we're celebrating the Lamb who was killed on your behalf. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the only reason that we're there is because of Christ. Because he went and prepared that table. Do you see the connection between Psalm 23, church, and all of the Bible? The Psalm 23 is trying to get your eyes off of just your circumstances and put them on something greater, to put them on a table, to put them on the dwelling of the house of the Lord forever, that you're going to be there. So your circumstances, your life are not the end game, but something else is. See, we have him. We have Christ. We have that good shepherd. And until that day comes, though, because I long for it. I don't know about you guys. I long for that day when everything is right. But Revelation also says that that's the day when all your tears will be wiped away. Or as C.S. Lewis would say, all the sad things in life become untrue. But until that day, because we don't know when that day's coming, let me just leave you with these promises from the Word of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, if you are a Christian, I hope that you walk out of here just loving the promises of Psalm 23 far more than when you first walked in. That's my goal. And if you're not a Christian, or maybe you're just not quite sure where you're at, I pray that Psalm 23 has helped you uh, maybe have that light bulb start to come on a little bit that I'm not meant to do this thing on my own. I'm not, I'm not good at it. I'm not a good God. And you've realized that maybe you've, you've just used Jesus to get what you want instead of actually wanting him. Wanting him. And that light bulb is starting to come on. And what that light bulb means, like it meant for the son who was sitting in the pig pie saying, I need to go to my father. What that light bulb means is it means that you need to repent. It means, and that's just a a $10 theological word that means to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. To turn back. To turn back. And so my hope is that if that light bulb is going on, that you would turn from your sin and you would turn to Christ who paid for it on the cross. And know what the good news is? Is he's going to embrace you just like the father did to the prodigal son. That's why it's there. That's why it's there. And he's going to walk with you like he walks with every single Christian. As Psalm 23 states, with comfort and provision for every season of life, that no matter the path, no matter the hardship, that we can trust the good shepherd. That is Psalm 23, church. That's the gift that we have in him. That's the God that we worship. Let's respond. Let's respond to the truth of that. Let's pray and then we're going to sing together. Well, Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promises of Psalm 23. I thank you for the table that you've prepared. 
the table that I've already been able to partake in, the table that we even remember when we take the Lord's Supper, but I look forward to that ultimate table that will be with you for all of eternity. But God, I know that all the promises that we have then can still be experienced now in the sense that we get you now. We don't have to wait for for the new heavens and new earth to experience your presence now, but we have that now in you. God, I, I pray that you would help every single person in this room, including myself, have, have this, these promises just take heart, take hold of the, the hardness of my heart at times and supplant all the goodness that is in you and just remove all the wickedness that's in me and let me live in light that I'm in the house of the Lord forever. In your name I pray, amen.